hands lifted in this place. Come on, just sing it to him. We sing great are you, Lord. Come on, from your heart, from the soul of your spirit, we sing great are you. Oh, Lord, we humble ourselves before you, and we sing great are you, Lord. Great are you, Lord. Oh, lift it up, sing it out, church. down south on the border of Missouri and uh, uh, Amish community and just an amazing, amazing place. If you get an opportunity, go down there. They do this amazing pr uh, produce auction, which is really cool. Anyway, so uh, we went and ate at this little cafe restaurant. It's called the Red Barn. And you go in there and they have all the seasonings. And I'm always looking for uh, chocolate-covered coffee beans because I just love those. And, uh, and they had them, and I bought a ton of them. <laughs> was pretty wired by the time I got home. But uh, while we were there, they had this little cafe, and they had all these inspirational signs in there. Kind of reminded me a little bit of Hobby Lobby, except it was like Hobby Lobby on steroids with all these signs. It was just literally from wall to ceiling. And, and I'm just reading all of them, and most of them are all just inspirational. Some are funny about, you know, my wife says camping one more time she'll leave me and she he says I'll miss her <laughs> stuff like that but there was one sign in particular that I saw and I've, I've said this and alluded to it before but it was just three words and it's so profound so profound and I believe that and I'm going to tell you what those three words here are in a second I'm going to leave you hanging but I believe as a church that our job our mandate is to go into all the world and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our goal is to reach lost souls for our Savior. Amen. How many would agree with that? Amen. And some people say, well, I have to be in full-time ministry to do that, or I have to be an ordained pastor. No, your ministry is who you encounter each and every day. Whether it's at the workplace, whether it's at school, whether it's um, in line, in Menards or Walmart, your ministry is who you encounter. And sometimes we can all get discouraged, and I know 2020, it's not over. <laughs> but it's been a crazy year, has it not? And it's easy for us, as, especially with people of God, we put our trust and our hope and, and, uh, and our love in Jesus, and uh, yet we can be discouraged. It's easy to be discouraged. So I'm looking at these, this sign, and it's just sitting middle of all of these signs, I mean, just wall to wall, and it was three words, 
it said victory in praise. So you want to think about that for a little bit. Victory in praise. And I want to challenge you, church. What are we doing to get victory in our lives? And I'm, I'm going to be the one that I'm preaching to the choir. I'm, I'm preaching to myself. I can get angry. I can get bitter. I can get frustrated. I can get annoyed. I can get sometimes belligerent, maybe. But that's not victory. And that sure is not praise. But I tell you, when I, in all things, in all things, when I give thanks and when I praise my God, that's when the victory comes. How many believe that this morning? So we need to praise him through the storm, praise him through the trials, praise him through all the circumstances, and there will be victory in praise. How many believe that? Amen? Amen. 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 Search the world.
better than you. There's thankful for your spirit. Pray right now that we open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand. Lord, more importantly, may we open our hearts to receive your word. We love you this morning. In your name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Aren't you thankful to be in church this morning? (laughs) Amen. Turn to one next to you, give them an air high five and say, it's great to be here today. Good morning. 2020 has been quite a year, hasn't it? Someone said you better save your firewood. Winter's not here yet. I saw a meme that said we started off with COVID, and then we had riots, and then we had derecho. He said, I don't know if I need a mask, a gun, or a generator. I think I need all three. It's been, it's been, no, no, I'm not going to digress there, but it's been crazy so far. But here's what I want you to know, that God is still in control. God is still in charge. Good things are happening. We've been praying for Derek Boyvin, executive in our state office, who's been in the hospital almost a month with the uh, coronavirus. He had a kidney transplant, immunosuppressed. It's been terrible on his lungs. Um, But they have pronounced him um, free of the virus. He'll have a long road of recovery, but he should go home uh, early uh, this week. That's the plan. So we celebrate that. I want you to pray for First Assembly in Cedar Rapids. Lost the entire roof on their building. The inside is a total disaster. Same thing happened at Faith Assembly in Marshalltown. Roof completely gone, rained in. Everything inside is lost. I know that's true for other churches as well. And uh, I had, uh, was requested that we come over and help a bit in Marshalltown. We drove over there with the team. And uh, when I got there, I felt bad about what we were dealing with here in our neighborhood with a few limbs down. Uh, it looks like um, a 50-mile-wide tornado ripped through that town. I mean, it's just amazing. And some of you I know are just getting power back. Is there anyone that doesn't have power yet at your house? Still don't, all right? We're praying that God will supply that need. Aren't you glad God turned the thermostat down just a little bit here? I'm glad for that, but God is taking care of his people. We had a wonderful testimony Wednesday night. Gary Barden, some of you know Gary uh, Barden, and uh, three years ago was diagnosed with cancer. He had cancer activity from his neck to his hip. They gave him just a few weeks to live three years ago. The doctor said to him, when I examined you the first time we saw the test, that you weren't going to make it. I'd never see you again. They came in Wednesday night and showed me the latest scan. There's one little spot of activity in his neck. The rest of it is completely gone. You can say that treatment did that, and I'm glad for treatment, but I'm also glad for Jesus, who has the final say over what the doctors say. Hello? They're thrilled and excited. Got to tell you one more story. Someone, I shared a story Wednesday, and this is just to clarify. I'm taking from my own preaching time right now. Is that all right? Thank you very much. Um, 
story that I told Wednesday night kind of got elaborated and somebody asked me this morning, said I heard there were 20 teenagers here Wednesday night with knives and guns. That is not what I said, okay? That is not what I said. Check your sources, okay? If I say it, ask me. Don't quote me. Hello, hallelujah, glory to God. Um, what I did say was this. Some of you remember that for we had a two-year span where we had young people coming over from the apartments, and it was a war zone every Wednesday night. Um, we took knives away. There were police here every other weekend, and we had some of our regular church folks nervous about coming, and I get that. Chief of police asked us to not uh, do that any longer. And what I shared Wednesday, and I want to share it again this morning. I'm so excited by it. Pastor Larry sharing with us that there's a young man in Teen Challenge hungry for all that God has for him said, where are you from? I'm from Pleasant Hill. Where do you live? Near McDonald's. And uh, said, oh, have you heard of Berean Church? Oh, yeah, I used to go there. I was one of those kids that came looking for trouble, trying to tear things up. But he said, Pastor Justin got into my heart, and Jesus is changing my life. And I'm excited about what God has for me in the future. I'm telling you. He's still in control. He's still changing lives. He's still working miracles. And the gospel is still being preached around the world. This morning we have some special guests with us. They're going to come and share their heart for a little bit. The um, uh, Allies are here, missionaries to the Philippines. Come, greet the congregation, share a bit. Give them a welcome this morning. Would you do that? Thank you. Good morning, Marine family. It's great to be here with you. I've got my wife, my beautiful wife, Christy, who got called into the missions field at the age of 14, and uh, my daughter, Belle, and son, Josiah, are all here with me. It's a privilege to be here with you. Thank you, Pastor Gary, for this opportunity, and thank you, Berean family, for what you already do for missions, and what you already give, what you already pray, what you already send. You've sent me. See, I grew up here. I grew up here at Berean, and uh, this was my home growing up through childhood. I think when we had Sunday night service, I think I had to get saved every Sunday night at these altars for a long time as a young person. I remember elementary school, going to Sunday school, and the Foxworthy, David Foxworthy was my Sunday school teacher, taught me how to read the Bible and love the Word of God. And through middle school and high school, uh, Bill and Mary Campbell, who were youth leaders that really poured their lives into me and taught me how to love people because they loved me. And uh, Bill taught that, you know, I want you to know that there's an anchor, there's a hope for your soul that is firm and secure, and I needed that anchor to carry me through some things. You know, as a teenager, my dad got cancer, and... I got pretty frustrated and had my struggles, had my struggles with addictions and hurts and wounds. And, um, you know, as a young adult, um, the Hanson family, Steve and Lorraine, you all walked with me through some dark times in my life until God would heal me. And it was around this altar at Berean. It was right over here where God called me <laughs> and said, will you follow me? And I said, yes, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you want me to go. And so uh, eventually, I praise the Lord, I thank him, and I give him the glory, and God would take me from that spot, he would take me to Indiana. I spent about 12 years working at a residential place for troubled teens, and I got to work with some young, young gang members and kids, boys and girls who had been abused, neglected, and abandoned. They had some hurts, they had some wounds, you know, but the love of Jesus was able to touch many of them and heal many of them. And in 2015, God sent our family to the Philippines to do a similar work. We are partnered with Global Teen Challenge where we are 
trying to raise up residential and non-residential discipleship programs to help people of all ages to find that same healing that Jesus Christ offers today. Um, I was able to, through that to meet a, a man by the name of David, already in his 50s, that struggled with alcohol his entire life. But he had a praying mom, he had a praying dad, and he had a praying brother who had been praying their guts out for him. And today, David is set free from his alcohol addiction. He's living for Jesus Christ, and he is serving other men to help them find that same hope and healing too. While I was in, yes, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. And while I was in the Philippines, I met this man. He was already delivered in ministry. His name is Pastor Sam. First Sunday I met Pastor Sam. He's smiling from ear to ear. He said, hi, I'm Pastor Sam, and I am called to be a martyr. And I thought that was crazy. <laughs> I thought he was crazy. I thought he was showing off for me, honestly, until I got to know his story. He had been, he had been in the southern part of his, in the Philippines with his family, young wife and two young kids about my age, children's age, and they had been planting a church amongst radical Muslim people. When to give his all. Now, I take the time to, to, to share his story with you a little bit today because he taught me that, that giving your all is, is about a, a joy, actually. It's a privilege because God has already given his all for us, and that's what he wanted to do for the, his king. He wanted to get as close as he could to follow Jesus. And today, I know missions isn't just about going halfway around the world because you can't love the person around the world if you can't love the soul across the street. But you can't love the soul across the street if you can't also love the person around the world. And today I want to say from one generation of Berean to another, you know, I am not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I believe that we are in a season where, where like our kids are like arrows. I believe Berean, I believe the church, we are like arrows. And I believe that God is pulling us back and he is wanting to release us into a destiny of loving other people for this generation. I believe that he is allowing a little window of time, a little bit of mercy for a purpose and for a plan. So I thank you for what you are already doing to be a part of that plan. And today I just want to encourage you to ask the Lord, God, what you want me to do to follow you today and love people and be like Jesus with skin on to somebody else just like you have been to me as I've grown up in this church. Thank you and God bless you. Amen. Isn't it good to know that investment from years uh, past is continuing to produce fruit today? We're going to give you an opportunity. We can't really receive an offering the way that we have in the past. But if you want to do something to bless this ministry, and I know that you do, hold up your hand if you want to see this ministry blessed. If anyone doesn't hold up their hand, kick them in the shin and hold their hand up. Um, you can do it several ways. You can use text to give if we have that slide ready. Uh, text the keyword Ali and the dollar amount to 84321. Ali and the dollar amount to 84321. And we will make sure that goes to them. You can also write a check or give cash this morning using an offering envelope that should be in a seat pocket near you. And drop it in the box on your way out. Um, we'd be glad for you to respond in whatever way you're comfortable with. So do something significant this morning. This is the first time I've taken up a special offering without taking up the offering. It's a strange time, but I know that God's people give. Thank you for your faithfulness and generosity. Let's just pray. Lord, thank you for your love and kindness. and pray that you would help us this morning respond to your spirit to generously and financially invest in what you're doing through this family from Berean in the Philippines. 
Let us bless them in Jesus' name. And everyone said? Amen. Amen. Watch this video. Amen. How many of you believe that Christian faith is more than something we talk about? It's something that we have to live out every day. We have to live the mission. We're in Ezra chapter 9 this morning. If you want to join me there, rising from the rubble. I think I need to change the sermon title. I don't know what you think, but we're in the middle of rubble all around so many ways. Ezra went back in the second return to Jerusalem to reestablish worship. The temple had been built, and he's there to teach them the ways of worship. Ezra chapter 7 showed us God's role in Ezra's journey. Ezra chapter 8 showed us Ezra's role in the journey. And in chapter 9, we discover why he needed to come to Jerusalem. The nation had compromised their faith. In the 58 years between chapter 6 and chapter 7, worship had become something that was unrecognizable by biblical definition. The word compromise is a difficult word for Christians to use sometimes uh, because it is viewed so negatively. But there are times that compromise is a good word. If you're married and don't know what the word compromise means in a good way, you're headed for a counselor. How many of you know what compromise means? It means you don't always get your way. The definition in the dictionary says that compromise is when two sides give up some demands to meet somewhere in the middle. And the dictionary gave this illustration of compromise, and I, I, I don't like it, and I'll share with you why. But it says that an example of compromise is a teenager wanting to come home at midnight. While the parents want them to come home at 10, they end up agreeing upon 11. Not in my house. Anybody hearing me this morning? If I said 10, we're not negotiating. That's not a contract we're going to sign. So I didn't like the illustration, but if I don't have a legitimate reason as a parent for them to come home at 10, and they don't have a legitimate reason to stay out till midnight, and I taught my kids nothing good ever happens after midnight, by the way, um, and you might agree on 11, I could get that, but you understand compromise when you move to the middle. You give up and gain, give up and gain. It's win some and lose some. There is an appropriate time for compromise, but some things can't be compromised without consequence. In Ezra chapter 9, compromise is a bad thing. And now we know why Ezra is sent to Jerusalem. One of the great preachers, um, toe-stomping, hair-scalding preachers of a bygone era, Leonard Ravenhill. How many have ever heard the name Leonard Ravenhill, if you, have, if you were a Christ passionate Christ follower and heard Leonard Ravenhill preach, Brother Doug, you'd be back at the altar getting saved all over again. He was that kind of a preacher. Here's what he said. The man who bows the knee to the Father will not bow the knee to compromise. If Jesus had preached the same message that we're preaching today, he would never have been crucified. 
You got to think about what he had to say. And then he asked this question, are the things you're living for, are the things you're living for worth Christ dying for? It helps you evaluate where you are spiritually, where your life is headed. Some of you may be more familiar with Tony Evans, and Tony Evans is also a straight shooter, and he says this about compromise. Compromise is the cancer of the church, and we must rid Christ's body of it. While Christians can compromise on preferences, they cannot compromise on principles. We can't be one way on Sunday and another way on Monday. There's a major problem among Christians in America today. We don't take a stand. We don't keep our standards. We merely shift to satisfy society. And what's happened in Ezra chapter 9 is they've made a number of compromises that have moved them a long way from what God intended them to be. And over the journey of a denomination, the denomination can do the same things. I dare say, good or bad, the assumptions of God today would not be recognizable by those who met in Hot Springs, Arkansas in 1914. That is both good and bad, perhaps. But things change, and life moves on, and some of the changes we accept and embrace, but other changes should never be accepted or embraced. And what's happened in Ezra chapter 9 are changes that it no longer looks like what God intended it to be. And so the question that churches have to ask, in our adapting, in our attempt to be relevant, have we compromised our faith? Have we made some changes that make us no longer recognizable to our calling? And that happens to churches when they get so wrapped up in being relevant that they lose the reality of the message. And you need to ask the same. If you've been a Christian longer than five or ten years, or I would say five or ten months, sometimes where we started isn't where we are, and we can't see that unless we look back at where we began. How many are hearing what I'm saying? So I want to talk to you about what it looks like to confront compromise. If we're going to rise from the rubble, if worship is going to be restored, if revival is going to come to America, if we're going to see God's power released through this body of believers, we have to make sure that we are not changing in ways that compromise our faith. And the first step to that is you have to recognize compromise. You have to recognize compromise. Israel had a twofold failure. They had adopted, in the first two verses of chapter 9, they'd adopted the detestable practices of the neighboring lands. And when you understand what was happening in the neighboring lands, these were vile people that lived around them. They sacrificed their children in some places. Sexual activity was part of the worship experience. Things that happened that were not just uncomfortable, they were detestable in the eyes of God. And Israel was beginning to pick those up by association. Why had they picked them up? Because they intermarried with the people around them. So I need you to really understand this morning that this is not a racial issue. It's not an ethnic issue. It's not saying that if you marry outside your ethnicity, you're wrong. It's saying that when a believer marries an unbeliever, the unbeliever is most likely to shape the believer, not vice versa. And that you can't link your life with somebody that you don't agree with. How can two walk together except they be agreed? And on some rare occasion, you may have a believer that dates an unbeliever and leads them to Christ. But I tell you, 
I've sat with people in my office way too many times crying real bitter tears because they married someone they thought later would walk with them in their faith that never chose to walk with them. So this issue is about when we link our lives with people that we can't agree with. And intermarriage in a faith context is more likely to destroy your faith than it is to improve theirs. Are you hearing me this morning? To our teenagers this morning or teenagers that are watching online, if you're a Christ follower, I don't believe it's possible for you to marry a non-Christ follower because the only way you can walk together with a non-Christ follower is to compromise your faith. Intermarriage led to the intermingling of faith traditions that were destructive. Why do I say recognize it? Because they came to Ezra and said, look at what's happening. The people are intermarrying. They've taken some of their daughters as wives and their sons have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them and it's led to this unfaithfulness. You can't fix what you can't recognize. I um, period of time in my life where I moved out from home when I went to Bible college, long story there, but I was living with a family in the church, and I remember one day the um, husband of the household was in the basement working on the washing machine. And I said, how do you know what to do? Did you take a class? How do you know how to fix a washing machine? He said, I don't. I just open it up and look for something that looks broken. How many of you know what that's all about? Some are better than that. You can't fix it if you don't recognize it's broken. If someone walks up to you and says, let me fix this, there better be something wrong with it. If you have your wife's supper, she prepares a meal for you, or the husband prepares the meal, and the spouse says, um, let me fix this for you. How many know you're going to wear the meatloaf? It's not going to be. It's going to be a problem. You can't fix what isn't broken. So I was thinking about compromise. How do we understand what compromise is? What is it really? It's easy to say, don't compromise without having any idea what it is. I want to give you two phrases that are a huge warning light that you're about to compromise something of faith. Okay, two phrases that are a great warning. Here's the first one. Just this once. Whatever follows that is going to take you down a road that you don't want to go. Just this once. You're headed down a wrong road. And the other phrase is this. It starts this way. It's only... It's only is going to take you down a road. You see, compromise doesn't start with you committing adultery. It starts with you relaxing a standard that you have in your life to protect you from failure. And so I want to give you some really um, specific examples of how simple it is for us to slide down the wrong road. When I was in Junior high, I was, believe it or not, I was a good student. I did well. I enjoyed school, the academic side of it. And um, we, were, we were taking a test one day. And there's a kid sitting beside me who was one of the thugs in school. How many know what I mean by that? 
Seven of you. The rest of you get I never, you know. What? How many know what I'm talking about? Come on, help me this morning. Thank you, thank you. And so when he asked me a question, I thought there are two things here. Number one, I don't want to get beat up. And number two, I'd like him to owe me a favor. Now, those aren't bad. He leaned over and he said, what's the answer to question number seven? I knew the answer. I thought, I can't just tell him that violates my conscience. But just this once, I said to him, I'm going to go sharpen my pencil. And I slid my test over face up. I couldn't control what he does. I went over and sharpened my pencil till I was sure he had the answer. I came back and sat down and the teacher was standing at my desk. And she said to him, if you copy again, I'll give you an F. And then she looked at me and said, and if you leave your paper right side up again away from your desk, I'll give you an F as well. Ouch. Do you know what that was? I was compromising a little conviction. Where could that have led me? Oh, it could have led me all kinds of ways of manipulating what I have to get what I want. How many are hearing what I'm saying? Hello? It's little things that in and of themselves may not be so bad. We have a rule at Berean among our staff. It's called the rule of three. I first heard of that with Billy Graham. What's the rule of three? No one on our team is allowed to be one-on-one with a person of the opposite sex. If they're in the office, the window uh, shade has to be open so we can check and hold you accountable. But there's something that happens. You say, well, you know, this person, I could be with someone of the opposite sex and it not be a problem. Oh, sure, there are times when it wouldn't be a problem, but (laughs) what are you going to do? Say, well, I'm attracted to you, so we can't go together, but I'm not attracted to you. I'll take you to lunch. (laughs) Are you hearing what I'm saying? So you have a rule, the rule of three. You can't have a guy and a girl together. You say, well, you're paranoid. (laughs) Oh, no. Listen, I'm too old to be paranoid. I have too much life experience. It's real. How many are hearing me now? Not paranoid at all. And how does that work? Well, it's really simple. Uh, I knew when I was in high school, I knew a youth pastor that I admired greatly. A young lady from a troubled background had given her life to Jesus, and they wanted to take her to camp. She didn't have any way to get there. He was going to go as a counselor. His kids had already gone the week before. She had just gotten saved. So just to help her out, and I believe he's honest at the beginning, drove her to camp. Two or three hours drove her back, began to disciple her one-on-one. Their marriage was in trouble, and you know where that ended up? That he divorced his wife, married this girl, and I don't think it was accidental that on our honeymoon, we met them at a restaurant. And so I went up to talk to him while my wife went to the car. You'd be surprised how many times I go to talk to somebody and she goes to the car. And I said, look, I'm not picking. I just want to know what happened. How did this happen? And you know what he said to me? He didn't blame himself at all. He blamed his father-in-law for what happened. What happens when you begin to compromise, it moves you little by little. And it may start good and honest, but it's going to take you somewhere you don't want to go. I'm from an unchurched family. We didn't go to church at all. When the preacher would come to our house, mom would get her beer can and hide in the bathroom with the five of us so no one would know her home. My parents drank, smoked, 
alcohol dominated their lives. My dad became an alcoholic. It was a mess. And when they came to Jesus, they gave all of that up. There was, I grew up then after second grade, no alcohol, no tobacco, no habits. They just gave it all to Jesus. But I remember when I came home from school in 10th grade and I saw some Valley High in the fridge. I said, Mom, what is this? Oh, it's only cooking wine. And then I remember coming home and she's watching soaps drinking the cooking wine. And then you fast forward, alcohol reconsumed our home to the day I found my dad drunk in the barn rolling in horse manure and didn't know where he was because he'd polished off a fifth of whiskey. How many are hearing what I'm saying? I'm talking about it's only just this once, one little step of compromise. One last example of what compromise looks like. When I was in Bible college, nobody paid my bills. I worked all summer to get enough money to pay my bills so I go back to college and worked while I was in school. And I worked for a while at a chicken factory. It's not where they manufactured them. It's where they butchered them. And it was hard work. It was, it was hard, cold, and and I came home on a Wednesday, and we had a rule that you did not skip church in Bible college. How many think that's a good rule for Bible college kids? You got to go to church, and we had to go Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday night, in addition to chapel, uh, eight days out of seven. And I was tired. We had a test the next day. I hadn't had time to prepare. And so during this time of, of uh, coming home from work, tired, I showered, and I thought, I'm going to flunk that test. But I know they do dorm check to make sure we're all gone. So I crawled in the closet, dumped my dirty clothes on top of me, heard the dorm supervisor come in. He looked in the closet, thought something was up, but I was really camouflaged. That was a lot of laundry in that closet. And left. And I thought, great, I can prepare. And I heard God say to me, is this the kind of pastor and leader you're going to be? Cutting corners because it suits you. I hated that moment. <laughs> and went to church. And still did well on the test. My point being, do you see, any one of those can be justified. And I doubt that anyone in Israel started off saying, let's marry foreign spouses and destroy our faith. Let's make it unrecognizable. Let's see how we can destroy what we believe. Not at all, because it is all justifiable. If we intermarry with the, with the nations around us, they can't attack us. And you know what? They've got some cute young ladies over there. I mean, God wouldn't care. I mean, God wants us to be married. God wants us to be happy. Is anyone hearing me this morning? And we begin to justify the steps away from our faith rather than steps toward our faith. And little by little, we begin, we begin to make these compromises and we end up in a place we don't even recognize. You can't fix what you can't recognize. And so dealing with compromise begins by recognizing where you've let down the standard, you've let down your guard. Pilgrim Benham, isn't that a great name for a pastor? Pilgrim Benham. Would it, be, would it surprise you that his parents were 70s Christian hippies? <laughs> Named him Pilgrim. What a great name. Gave five steps to compromise the slippery slope. Listen, number one, a failure to purpose in our heart ahead of time 
to do the right thing. If you don't decide ahead of time to do the right thing, you might not. Number two, underestimating, underestimating the evil, including the failure to recognize temptation. That's really not that bad. Number three, rationalizing. Number four, a failure to consider costly consequences. And number five, a sudden deliberate choice to give in to sin. So what do we do? We need to take personal and corporate inventory to make sure we haven't made choices that are moving us towards some direction we don't want to go. I'm working on a sermon I'm going to title Lessons of Derecho. How many don't want to hear it? <laughs> um, I saw a tree that was like, I couldn't reach halfway around it that had busted in half and fallen over. How does a tree that big bust in half? Because it was hollow on the inside. I saw trees that their entire root base came out of the ground. Why does that happen? There can be a number of reasons. It can be root rot. It can also be because the weight of the tree was, not, was bigger than the uh, root system that was intended to sustain it. And I drove around watching all the damage, thinking this storms come and reveal our weaknesses and our flaws. It's better to recognize it beforehand. You have to recognize where you've gotten off. It's only or just this once you're headed down a wrong road. Second, then, you've got to respond to the compromise. Ezra experienced profound remorse. You will either have remorse or you will rationalize. How will you respond to the compromise when you see it? And this is extreme. What did Ezra do? What he, found, he got there and found out what they've done. Look at what they've done, what they're doing. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my hair, from my head and from my beard and sat down appalled. I did research. What does it mean to pull out your hair on your head and your beard? It means you pull out the hair on your head and your beard. It means it hurts. Can you imagine? I'm looking for a good beard going here somewhere. I should have Corey come up here and see how hard I'd have to pull to rip some of that out. <laughs> I can promise you he wouldn't stand there and smile. I can promise you I'd be looking into next week when I landed. He ripped. Can you imagine being that upset? I mean, I understand that, that was part of their culture to tear their clothes. But can you imagine starting to, being so upset over compromise that you start ripping out your hair, that you start ripping out your beard? That is a level of remorse that I've never seen. Or rarely seen. And that's why it's easy to compromise because when we see it, it, we're not appalled. We just justify it. Well, it's just the church. It's the era we live in. It's the times that we're in. The only way to deal with compromise in a healthy way is to respond to it rightly. And the right way to respond is with remorse. To be astonished. It means to lay waste, to be destitute. He saw their compromise as an egregious offense to a holy God. And Ezra responded with sorrow, not with self 
defense. That's where it's got to take us. God, I'm so sorry. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians, godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you? What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what alarm, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you've proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. Why? Because when they saw the compromise, they were appalled at that, and they responded to it in a right way. goes on to say in uh, scripture also says in Matthew chapter 26, that conversion moment for Peter. Do you know that Jesus prophesied that Peter would deny him three times? Peter said it'll never happen before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. He also said to Peter, but when you're converted, strengthen the brethren. You're going to fall, but you'll get up. Where did Peter begin his turnaround after denying the Lord? The Bible tells us this. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. He went outside and wept bitterly. It broke him when he saw it. He didn't justify it. He didn't explain it away. He didn't say, oops, shouldn't have done that. I'm embarrassed. There are moments in our lives where repentance needs to mark the life of a believer that we see how far we've drifted and say that's not an appropriate response for the church. And we're being shaped by that today. I'm trying to avoid going there, but we're being, a sh- uh, we're being shaped by that today. Our, issue, our, our position on social issues is softening at an alarming rate. And what at one time in our history was indisputable sin is now tolerated in the ranks of leadership. Yeah, I'm going to go there. I saw in an Assemblies of God forum this discussion. If you have an openly active homosexual couple that are living together, They're in in a homosexual relationship. Would you let them serve on your board? I don't even know who we are anymore. In some places, we have no idea how far we have shifted in some circles within our fellowship. And we need to also look at our own now officially Leadership would not be in support of that. But when you're even having the discussion, it tells me there's a weakness of foundation that's moving us a direction that we ought not go. Your response when you see compromise will determine your path forward. If you justify it, you'll continue on a downward road and be destroyed by it. But if you experience remorse and godly sorrow, you will be able to turn around and recover from it. And so the key is self-awareness in your relationship with God that you reason together with him and say, where have I moved from where I once was? It's time for the church in this generation to look at that. You've heard me say often that 
in this generation, people want to belong before they believe, and I get that, and we try to give people a place that they can belong, that they can be a part, and then lead them to Christ, but that belonging doesn't mean you give them leadership or let them teach or let them counsel or let them influence or let them determine policy or establish doctrine because you have to believe before you can do any of those things. But in the world today, in the broad tent, we're just hugging everything. I wish we were as concerned about embracing compromise as we are about embracing someone who has COVID. The church would purify itself. Are you hearing what I'm saying? I I know, I didn't expect you to shout, but it's Ezra's story. (laughs) This will be over in a little while. Then what do you do? Once you recognize it and respond to it, you have to repent. You see, godly sorrow isn't repentance. Remorse isn't repentance. Feeling bad about it doesn't change a thing. In fact, if you experience, listen to me, if you experience remorse and don't repent, it'll be easier for you to go back deeper into compromise because you've had a catharsis that's removed the guilt and now you've not repented and you'll fall even deeper down that hole. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. What does repentance look like? Well, Ezra maps this out for us in four markers. Verses 5 to 7. I want to tell you what it means. You can jot this down if you want. It's not in your notes. Um, Jot this down if you want. What does it mean to truly repent, according to Ezra 5 to 15 in his prayer? Number one, you express your regret. You express your regret. I am ashamed and disgraced. And he's talking about his people. I am ashamed and disgraced for the sins of the people of God. Our guilt is great. You can't repent until you express that you were wrong. How many of you have ever been wrong? Hold up both your hands. But isn't it, does anybody find it, be honest, <laughs> doesn't who you're talking to impact whether or not it's easy to admit you're wrong? How many of you know people that if you admit you're wrong, they're going to make you eat it? Yeah, I'm not being wrong to them. (laughs) Nope. But it doesn't matter who the person is. If you're wrong, you're wrong. And you need to express your regret. I am sorry we have done wrong then what and this is the hard part for people to get a hold of once you express your regret over your failure second you need to embrace the gift of grace you don't have to do penance you don't have to keep suffering you don't have to keep wallowing in it at that point accept the gift of grace that's what he has for you he won't beat you up he won't criticize you he won't make you eat it verses 8 and 9 talk about the graciousness of the hand of God and Ezra says God we have a moment of grace here that we need to experience how many of you are thankful for the grace of God when you're there he's there to lift you out of that God has been gracious and has not forsaken us. 
Ezra says he's granted us new life to rebuild. That's the God that we serve. Then in verses 10 to 13, he confesses his failure. One is regret. Then you embrace his grace. Now you can reason together with him about what went wrong and process the failure. Repentance is more than just being sorry. You express your regret, you embrace the gift of grace, and then you confess your failure, verses 10 to 13. Now what can we say? God, the command was clear. We knew better. It was not an oversight. We knew that we shouldn't be doing this. And then you process the failure. And then number four, you fall in his mercy. Did anyone hear judgment here? Did anyone hear condemnation here? Did anyone hear um, being beat to a pulp here? Not at all. What do you hear? When you really repent and you express regret and confess your failure, you'll experience his grace and his mercy. That's called restoration. That's what our God does. Hello? That's what our God does. The road from compromise to health is a deeply spiritual one. It involves recognizing, responding, and repenting. As a church, have we compromised in some of the changes we've made? You need to ask yourself that on occasion. But more importantly, in my own life, in my own life, have I allowed something to creep in that when I started this journey, I would never have tolerated I had a pastor call me. We had a conversation yesterday. He said, I've never experienced in my life what's happening in my church right now. I said, what is that? Gossip, criticism, backbiting, mean-spiritedness. You know what's happening? A storm is revealing the weaknesses. And maybe, maybe Jesus is going to use this time to purify his church so that the church comes back stronger, ready for his return. That involves self-evaluation, looking at our hearts with every head bowed, every eye closed. Online, I'm talking to you as well this morning. In the North Chapel, I'm talking to you as well. No one looking around. Has God perhaps this morning put a finger on your heart somewhere where you've experience the compromise that he's calling you back from? Maybe not during this service, but I just wonder, there, I'm sure there are some that he said right there, that's where it is, that's where you've backed up, and I need you to come back from that with no one looking around. If he has put his finger on something in your life, would you just slip your hand up this morning and say, that's where I'm at. Hands going up all around. Thank you. Hands going up all around. Jesus, you see our hands this morning. We recognize our compromise. We, we want to respond rightly. Help us repent and depend on your grace and your mercy in Jesus' name. I'm going to ask the rest of us as well to continue in the next few days. God, show me if there's somewhere that I have allowed compromise to slip in and I need to come back to that place of strength. Let's stand together. Pastor Nathan, lead us. Let's take just a moment to wait in the presence of God before we dismiss.
hearts and souls of every man. If you know it, sing it with me. and souls of every man. It is you, Lord, who knows my Jesus, as we stand here and worship before you, our hearts are open to you. Show us where you would call us back, where we may have even unintentionally or unaware, caught up in the moment, made compromises that seemed expedient but were not biblically, morally, and spiritually sound. And turn us into a sanctuary that glorifies you in every part of our lives. Help us live the mission in Jesus' name. And everyone that loves him said, amen, amen. amen. You can be